I am a school teacher, 16 years in the service. And hearing what you said about what's happening to children, um, we teachers have identified this so many times in our classroom. But what we are faced with is the excessive paperwork of referrals. And then what happens while well, in my country, Trinidad, it just gets lost in the clutter. Then we have, how to say it, it becomes very political. We're going to have voting. So all of those children are just shelved away. But being a teacher for the past 16 years, I knew these cases within my first month as a teacher. You know, this child is dyslexic. This child has um, ADHD. And, and, and we, we, we identify it as teachers. And it is annoying in fact, I maybe have to get on like Dr. Mills. It becomes so frustrating because when we have 30 children in front of our, in front of us, and two or three children are not following the flock, and we refer it, and it goes to social, um, social division, it just gets lost. I want to know, in your experience, Doctor, how can teachers deal with this? How can we put more fire under these agencies to get to get cracking? Thanks again. Yeah, thank, thanks for that question. I think I'm so glad you um, spoke up because I think that teachers are pretty much stuck holding a lot of the problems for our society that we're going through right now because they're the ones that are managing a lot of these issues that children are struggling with every single day and the support is not there and the funding's not there for the teachers. So the teachers are in the trenches and are just desperate to try and figure out how to overcome this. So what I would say is that I think it's um, really important to engage physicians and parents in this conversation because I think many physicians and many parents don't know um, what's happening or what they can do because many physicians weren't trained to look sort of from an integrative or functional uh, perspective at their patients. A lot of times they're just managing symptoms with pharmaceuticals. I mean, that's, that's just what they were trained in. So um, I think understanding the importance of nutrition uh, for both physicians and parents is going to be massively important for communities to tackle. So I've seen some communities where, um, you know, it's usually a parent brings uh, experts into community meetings for the school. So, you know, you pull, you pull the community together and you have a nutritionist come and talk about um, strategies for getting picky eaters to eat and improving nutrition in children and, you know, talking about screen time and all these kind of environmental things that, you know, we just take for granted as normal. You know, it's normal for kids to eat macaroni and cheese every day. It's normal for kids to eat tons of sugar. It's normal for kids to spend eight and 10 hours in front of a screen. That feels normal, but it's not good for their health. So I think, you know, if you're, if you're, um, interested in becoming sort of more activist about it. It's about getting some people in your community. So finding a functional medicine doctor, an integrative physician who will come in and talk to a group of parents, finding sort of, you know, maybe there's a nutritionist in the area or somebody who focuses on, on environmental health and bringing them in to talk to parents at a community meeting. I think that's the best thing we can do right now and, and, and get the parents involved because again, parents just don't know um, how they can, they want to help their kids too. They want this all to go swimmingly, but, um, and sometimes it's just about education and knowledge. So that's my best suggestion is really just to, you know, pull some people together in the community and, and get them talking about these issues. Thanks very much, Beth. And, uh, up next we have Ben, I'm going to unmute you, Ben. Hi, Ben. 
Um, ben, I, I'm hoping you can hear me. There's something wrong with your audio. I'm not sure what's happening there, but it sounded like slow motion. So if you can just, I'm going to lower your hand, but if you can come back in, we'll, we'll get back to you very shortly. Um, sorry about that, Ben. I'm not sure what happened, but do try again. And now I'm going to unmute somebody named Steve. And hi, Steve. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, have a question about the, the Walls Protocol. Uh, been following Terry Walls for over eight years now, and she keeps saying that her studies are imminent and uh, going to be published. And there's been one small study comparing uh, by the NIH comparing her protocol to uh, Dr. Roy Swank, who's got 50 years of follow-up. And it just seems like another one of these, you know, paleo protocols that they get a, a lot of benefit from taking out some of the bad stuff, but we're still waiting for somebody to show us that there's a real additional benefit to adding animal products as opposed to going completely plant-based. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the other, a lot of the other things that, that this speaker quoted had studies and things to support them. Didn't hear anything about the, the walls protocol. So I just wonder if there's any additional information about walls because we would love to see something positive about MS that has something to say about lesions and tests and studies and, and not just about, you know, a, a, a little bit improvement in, in, in fatigue, which is no better than any other protocol. Mm -hmm. That's my question. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for your question, Steve. I, I think um, what you just highlighted is a really important um, distinction about bioindividuality. And I, I think one of the problems we have in the world, dietetics and nutrition, is that people keep trying to prove or justify that there's one best way to eat for everybody. And I strongly believe in bioindividuality and that uh, there's different diets for different um, situations. You know, there's, for instance, people who will go to the mat defending the fact that you need to eat um, sort of like a Gershon or Hippocrates type um, approach for cancer, and they have amazing successes doing that. And I you know somebody who would do um, go to the same kind of level of intensity and in trying to support the idea of keto for cancer, as an example. So there's there's such strong feelings about this. And I think there is research that's coming out. Um, I don't know anything about what's um, prohibiting Dr. Walls from getting her publications. I don't know, you know, the situation with her, you know, barriers to publications right now. Though I will say that, you know, a lot of medicine right now is driven by pharmaceuticals and, you know, symptom suppressive products. So sometimes it's harder to get lifestyle publications uh, published. But what I will say is that there are some people out there who are doing a really great job. Um, teaching about bio-individual approaches to nutrition. So one example would be there's a nutritionist named Julie Matthews who has a wonderful website called Nourishing Hope. She's written a couple books. She focuses predominantly on children, but um, she looks at nutrition bio-individually. So, you know, you can't say that like paleo is for everyone or, um, you know, specific carbohydrate diet is for everyone or keto is for everyone. Like there is no one diet that's for every situation. 
So I really appreciate and respect that bio-individual approach. And the best way to sort of tackle that in terms of trying to figure out which diet is right for me is, is doing some testing. Um, you know, there's also other approaches like, you know, people who practice traditional Chinese medicine have completely different ways of looking at diet and, and how food can influence your health. So I think that's, um, you know, that's, you know, waiting for somebody to tell us what to do because they did research and this is the best way to eat is not never going to satisfy us. I think the, the way to get satisfied, especially if we're doing our own, on our own healing journey, is to really get in touch with your own body and your own needs and requirements as a bio-individual. Again, Julie Matthews is, is probably, she has an um, a institute where she's training people on how to do that. And she's one of the people that I know that's most skilled and expert in that area. Um, and I really do encourage you to start thinking about that. Um, there is an, a wonderful um, book written by a woman named um, Palmer Kipala called Reversing Autoimmune, and she re reversed um, MS in herself. So Terry Walls isn't the only one out there um, teaching and, and helping people through MS. So I encourage you to check out um, Palmer Kipala's um, book and resources in her website. Beth, thank you very much for that. And um, I'm going to go ahead now and bring in, let's see, Janet. Janet, I'm going to unmute you. Hi, Janet. And hi, good morning. Um, my question is, um, you know, the food, the food sources that we're giving our kids, the dairy in schools. My children are grown men at this point. And 20 years ago, when they were in school, it was macaroni and cheese, pizza, hot dogs, and burgers, and, you know, sweet snacks. And it really hasn't, I'm just shocked that it hasn't changed a whole lot. We're still giving kids chocolate milk, strawberry milk, and, you know, and foods that are not healthy, causing these diseases. What is being done on that front to educate you know, the school food directors and the government funded programs that are, you know, providing these school lunches for schools in every district. It's not just in districts that are uh, under privileges and, um, you know, can't afford it. I, I'm in uh, lucky to be in a middle class area and um, my kids were being uh, you know, fed in uh, parochial schools and public schools and very poor options. And it's very frustrating that nothing has changed in all these years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Janet, I have to share an anecdote with you. When my kids were younger um, in elementary school, they, um, I was appalled um, watching the food that was being offered in the public school system. So I went into my child, children's public school and sat down with the director of nutrition there and literally went line by line through her, um, you know, her orders that she was putting in for the different types of food to, for the, the entire school system and went through to try and troubleshoot and problem solve ways that we could improve the nutritional quality of the food, the nutrient density. I mean, literally was looking with, with her through her records and being like, okay, can we replace this, um, you know, processed food with black beans instead, you know, for more fiber, but like in, and her hands were tied. She only had so much money. She only had so much support. You know, there were nutritional guidelines that came from the federal government, from state guidelines. I mean, it is, these people's hands are tied. It's so hard. 
So the thing that I think is the answer is just like I was saying moments ago to, to Ansley's question about, you know, what do we do about this in the schools? It has to happen on a community level. And I'll give you a great example. Um, there is a wonderful woman named Hillary Boynton who is in Southern California and she has a program called School of Lunch. And she is training um, different nutrition professionals um, how to incorporate more nutrient dense food into the, into the school lunch programs. For instance, um, there are some communities where parents literally volunteer and come in to man a salad bar because there isn't enough money to have staff man a salad bar and there's federal requirements, et cetera. So um, there are communities where the parents come in and volunteer and support in order to get more nutritious food into the community. And, and Hillary Boynton in the School of Lunch is her program, trains people how to do these community-based efforts. So what I'm telling you is that it is like at the governmental level, at the policy level, it is just gridlock and it's hard. But if you can get a group of motivated parents together to try and problem solve this on the local level, I know that sounds, you know, sounds, you know, like easier said than done, but I've seen people who have done it when the parents are motivated enough. Again, it all just comes back to community-based approaches to um, restoring our children's health. Beth, thank you very, very much for that. Um... We have, uh, Laura is back. Let's cross our fingers that I'm gonna ask you to unmute Laura and see if that works. Oh, hang on. Okay, Laura, are you there? Oh no, we still have a problem with Laura's audio. Um, Laura, I'm not sure what to tell you to do on your end, but I see that you're unmuted and we are just not hearing you. I don't know if there's a volume control on your own computer. Laura, are you there? Um, I see you just muted yourself and let's try to, I'm going to ask you to unmute one more time. Laura, Laura, I'm so sorry. We're still not getting you. Um, just not sure what to do there. Um, forgive us, Laura, if you can try back perhaps on, a, on our next lecture, please do. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you know, Beth, we have another minute or so, if that's okay. I, I normally don't go to the chat box, um, but I, I noticed uh, somebody mentioned Annette M that uh, she, she was talking about how teachers in her district are not allowed to bring in any medical nutritional experts, nor can they make suggestions for parents to see such experts. We're told that these suggestions make the district liable. And they asked, she asked her principal about bringing in a nutritionist because she noticed the appalling diets that most kids are eating. It's sad because teachers are bearing the brunt of these behavioral problems in our classrooms, but because of politics and fear of lawsuits, they weren't allowed to be part of the solution. And again, we have about two minutes before our next lecture, but I just wonder, you've been commenting on this, but if you want to give us just a little more insight on that specific um, thing. Yeah, I mean, that's really hard. And, and the only thing I can say, and I can't speak from any personal experience because I've never been successful at that and I've never done that. Um, the only thing I can say is to try and keep running it up the flagpole, you know, school board, superintendents. I, I will give you something encouraging that happened when I, um, there was a period of time about eight years ago when I got pulled in to provide some um, advice to a local group of citizens in New Hampshire who were um, talking to the superintendent about putting nutrition curriculum into the schools. And they got very far along in the process, actually, believe it or not, 
they, um, and it's gonna differ from state to state, district to district, obviously, but they pulled in the superintendent of the schools and he was all in, he loved the idea. And ultimately at the end of the day, the only reason it didn't happen was because of uh, funding. But I'm telling you, just keep running it up the flagpole. Talk to school board um, officials, talk to superintendents. I, I do think if you, you know, the more parents you have involved, if you have an engaged group of parents and teachers and you go to the superintendent and you, and you really put the pressure on them, you know, you're gonna see more progress. And I understand the policies and restrictions are really just crippling, but um, don't give up. I think that the only way we're gonna see change is if citizens, parents, teachers, community members really pull together and just keep pushing it. Thank you.